If you'd open your Bibles to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 2. Last time we did the home fellowships, we uh, read through a large portion of scripture, and so this time, um, someone will be bringing devotion. So don't worry if you are the host, and you don't know who's bringing the devotion, that means it's not you. So you don't have to worry, someone's been assigned uh, in each place to uh, bring the devotion, so you don't have to suddenly scramble and say, what in the world am I going to do? It's already been taken care of. I should have said that a lot earlier, like in an email or something, but I didn't do that. And so uh, I didn't want anybody panicking. Anyway, let's, uh, let's pray. Father, as always, we are grateful that we can gather together and we can worship you. We thank you, Father, for the joy that's in our hearts as we come together, as we pray together, as we sing together, as we hear your word being read. As we bring our tithes and offerings, all, Lord, being done because we love you, because we are so grateful for all that you've done for us, and because it is right for us, Father, to worship you and to reverence who you are. We thank you, Lord, that we can call you our Father, and that you are indeed our Father. And so, Father, as we continue our worship of you, we we do so where we focus then on your word. We want to read and we want to understand. We want to to look at the details. We want to ask ourselves, why have you preserved this for us? What is it that you want us to know? What is it that we need to remember? Father, we want to be shaped by your word. We want the way that we think, the way that we make decisions to be shaped by your word. Father, we want to become like your son Christ in every way. Lord, we want to have the peace of God multiplied in our life. We want to be able to live in that peace, and we want to share that with others. And so, Father, as we focus our attention now on the book of Matthew, we ask, Lord, again, for your blessing. And we thank you for it, and we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 9. It says, After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother. And they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. So in verse 9, what you see there is the word behold. It says, after listening to the king, they went their way and behold the star. The star they had seen rose and went before them. And the idea there is they follow that star. And as we mentioned last week, we were talking, well not last week, two weeks ago, we talked about the star and that it was not an actual star as we think of a star. Uh, belief that it was the Shekinah glory of God and it came down and hovered right over the very house. 
that Jesus was. They didn't have to go knocking on doors in various neighborhoods looking for a newborn. Uh, They knew right where to go. But what we see here and what they had mentioned before when they first went to Herod is they came in and they worshipped. The word worship in this narrative appears three different times and it's a brief narrative. The word that's used for worship is proskuneo, uh, which simply means to bow or to show respect, to fall down before. Um, But it's not merely a bowing before authority. Uh, The phrase when it says they fell down is trying to intensify what took place. Uh, It is really looking at worship in its highest sense. Uh, And we spent some time talking about why would these men, this magi that we talked about, why would they come to do this? What was going on? And so we looked at some connections from the Old Testament. And so I want us to to think about this worship for just a moment. In the scripture, there's some other words used for worship. And I have them there in your notes. There's sabomai, which means to revere. And that's stressing the feeling of awe or devotion. Uh, There's the word latreo, which is to serve or to render religious service or homage. Homage or homage. And then there's uh, usabi, which means to act piously towards. And as I was kind of reading through those words and looking at some different books that I have talking about worship, what several in the indiv- individuals indicated was that the worship of God is really not really defined in the Bible. This is not like this comprehensive description. But when you look at these verbs and the way they're used and what's going on in the scripture, and you consider these words, it's not confined to praise, though praise is a part of it. Broadly, it may be regarded as the direct acknowledgement to God of his nature, of his attributes, of his ways and claims, whether by the outgoing of the heart in praise and thanksgiving, or by deed done in such acknowledgement. So it really encompasses all of life. When we, when we see beauty and we recognize what God has done, when we are serving each other, when we are serving God, all these things that we are doing are, are, are done acknowledging who God is. And those are all acts of worship. And so it's, a, it's an important word. It's an important part of our makeup as human beings. God has created us in a particular way. And there is a sense of completeness in, in, in the way we live when we are worshiping, and of course we want to make sure we're worshiping the right one, which would be God, not worshiping something else. I think that in the secular world, uh, we see the, the need for worship in the sense that people have a general sense of wanting to be a part of something bigger than themselves. And so people will do that. They will join various movements. Uh, many individuals have kind of noted when it comes to various kinds of groups, uh, various environmental groups, or, you know, save the whale, save the owl, whatever you're trying to save. The idea is that when it comes to some of those groups and some of the, the incredible devotion that people have to those groups and to uh, maybe a particular way of thinking, uh, it's, it's like a religious fervor. And the idea is, is that it gives to them a sense of uh, maybe importance that definitely goes on. Uh, a sense of being kind of complete. They're part of something bigger than themselves. And so, you know, along with that comes a feeling of well-being. Maybe even a, a spiritual experience as some people have uh, talked about. It. And they said that's why in some cases where, let's say that you're trying to save some species and it ends up being saved. It's no longer on the endangered uh, list of being, uh, you know, becoming extinct. They don't know what to do with themselves. If they can't latch on to something else, it's like, oh no, we, we, they're still on the same thing. Just, and they refuse to let it go. And they've seen that happen in, in some of these cases. 
And so I think all that's really easily remedied or understood in understanding how God has made us and, you know, part of the complexity of what we're like psychologically. And so there is this need, and it's a, it's a natural thing because it's not forced on us. It's just identifying that we are what? Dependent beings. And there is something else, there is something that we are dependent on, something that is great, something that is magnificent. And of course, it's clearly God who has given us life and everything good that we have. Then as they worship Jesus here, and even though he's an infant, they're worshiping him, they're acknowledging who he is, even though he's not done anything, he's a, he's a baby, they, they also naturally bring gifts. It's a natural part of, of wanting to worship, is to give. And so they, they bring these gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. We don't know how much they brought. Uh, some speculate, and you know, I guess speculation is not always bad. It, it wasn't like they brought a gold coin and a few ounces of myrrh. They, you know, they were, it was kind of a lavish kind of a gift that was given. And this would have financed them. And they had to move to Egypt. They lived for a little while. Then had to move back. And they ended up you know, in Nazareth and had to start over again. And this money could have been used, or these things used, to help finance the moving and getting on in life that they were going to need. But, but these things were brought in acknowledgement of the uniqueness and specialness of this individual. So in verse 2, when you kind of go on through this narrative, and again, as I mentioned before, uh, we talked before how God has left nothing to chance. God is involved in His creation. God is involved in our lives. When we see these events taking place, and we see God intervening, we need, it should remind us that God is not passively sitting in heaven just watching things happen. That's not what He's doing. God is in things, directing things, uh, shaping things. Uh, it is not like that one song, I can't remember the name of it, it's really unimportant, uh, but when it comes to the words, you know, God is at a distance. And that's one of the phrases in there. And it was kind of, you know, I like the song musically. But anyway, the idea was that God's, you know, out there somewhere and he's just kind of watching what happens. He is observing what is happening, but he's not an uninterested observer. He's very interested. It, I guess you could kind of say sometimes when you watch your kids when they're little, or when you watch your grandkids when they're little, and they're having a good time, and you're just watching, and you're not, it's not, it's not, there's different kinds of watching. You're not just sitting back passively watching, because if something begins to go awry, or you see danger, you're quick to move, to, to protect them, to watch over them. Uh, you know, I, they have all these little silly videos that go out all the time. I know you've seen them, so don't say, oh, I have no idea what you're talking about. All right, but there's one where there's this, it's, a, it's, it's just a clip of about maybe 33 to 5 second clips of dads and these incredible reflexes when their kids are about to destroy themselves. Like there's this, you know, the dad's sitting back reading a newspaper and the kid is standing on the armrest of the couch and they begin to go over and it's... It's like magic. They catch them, put them down, and they go back to reading. Or whatever happened. And there's all these, you know, it's pretty cool to, to see all those types of things. And so they're not just passive, uninterested observers. And so God is not that. He is orchestrating everything that takes place. Whether he's using a, what we might call primary means, where he himself is doing something like in here, you know, these, we'll see that the Magi have a particular dream. Or maybe secondary causes, certain people do certain things. But God is in and behind all those things. And that should give to us a great sense of comfort because we know the one who's doing all these things. He is he's accomplishing his will. Not only his will in a general sense, but he's also accomplishing his will in your life, in my life, using us in the lives of others, and maybe others in your life. And so there's this intricacy in life that is really very exciting. 
Uh, and at the same time, we, have, we should have a sense of confidence and comfort that God is involved in life and nothing is left to chance. As we've said many times before, God is never in heaven looking at your life and saying, Oh, I never saw that coming. That never happens. God is never in heaven saying, Ooh, how did that happen? That, that this doesn't take place. God is involved. And so, and so we, we can take great comfort in that. So verse 12, it says, And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So the word warned there, now I'm, you know, I, I was educated in Hawaii where I grew up, and English is not exactly a really big issue there. So I did not learn a lot about English. So I had, you know, back when I was taking Greek, I learned a lot about English, and I was really behind the eight ball then. But the idea is, and what I've read in some of these books and kind of checked out, is the word warned is a participle and it's plural. And the significance of that is what many believe is true, is that all the magi, whether there was two or whether there was ten or whatever, there was, a, there was more than one, we know that, they all had the same dream. So we, I'm not saying that dogmatically, but it does seem they all had the same dream, which would kind of be a strong indication this was from God. And there was no doubt in their mind as to who the message was from. They, they get this message, boom, they obey. They do exactly what it says. Which would be normal. I mean, these guys left their country following a star. You know, because of all these various things that we saw back in the book of Daniel and different places and what they were looking for. And so this idea of, of interaction with, with the supreme being, the God of Israel, was kind of a normal thing for them. And so they did exactly what he said. So then in verse 13 it says this, Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. It said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I have called my son. So when you read through the narrative here, beginning in verse 13, and I really hadn't noticed this before. It was pointed out by another, and it makes sense. But there's this phrase that's used when the angel speaks to Joseph. And he says, take the child and his mother. He doesn't say, take your son. He doesn't say, take your son, uh, or your child and his mother, or it doesn't say, your wife. And... They believe, and I don't think it's far-fetched, that it's just another reminder that Joseph is not Jesus' biological father. Because that's not, that's not normal. If I'm talking to anybody here, I would not say to you, take your child. I would say, take your son or take your daughter. It's just this kind of a normal way of speaking. And as I mentioned before, and we, we talked about you know, the virgin birth, the importance of the virgin birth, and that the scripture is clear that Jesus was born of a virgin. Um, and I believe that's clear from the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's not some minor issue. Because there are individuals, again, as we said before, the supposed academics, individuals, if you watch their learning channel or history channel, they have some you know, liberal-minded individuals talking about you know, Christian doctrine. And they make it all sound kind of like you know, there's just all these religions and they all have their own little you know, peculiarities. It doesn't really matter what you believe. You can be whatever you want, which is all that's untrue. But they try to, at times, make it sound like, you know, the virgin birth, you can take it or leave it. I don't think so. That's emphasized in a lot of ways. And so, so by itself, it's not, it's not like a big marker. When you put all these things together and, and you know, the way words are used and certain words and these phrases, all that makes a lot of sense. Well, yeah, this is not a small thing. Jesus is not Joseph's son. 
He is the Son of God. Period. And there's just, you can't make that connection here in any other way because that would almost, in fact, I guarantee you, if, if he was to say, take your son, the academics that are liberal would say, ah, you know, the Bible supposedly talked about the virgin birth, but look over here. Who says that? And they would make a big deal out of it. But no stone is left unturned. God knows exactly what he's doing. And so he tells him to take the child, to take the child's mother, and go to Egypt. He tells him why. You know, he tells him that Herod's going to start searching for the kid and wants him dead. So the question would be, so why Egypt? Why go to Egypt? Right? There's, I mean, there's more than, it's, it's not just Egypt that's close. There's a lot of places they could go. There's two reasons. One is kind of a practical one in this sense. And that is, at that time, there was easily over a million Jews living in Egypt. And that would indicate, because of what we understand about Jewish culture and society, that there would have been a very strong Jewish community. That's very important. You know, they, as you all know, there, there's, and you see this throughout all of history, they, they, the, the Jews, the religious Jews, tend to, to live together in a community. There's a reason for that. It's not because they don't like other people. It's got nothing to do with that. It's because of the way they live, the things they share in common, uh, their values, the way they go about, what they do, what they do on the Sabbath day, uh, how they conduct themselves. And so there's this idea of being community, sticking together. And of course, through the years, all the many different types of persecution that have come their way, that would even kind of push you more towards that. Because in essence, who has your back? Who's going to watch over you? Who's going to help you in your time of need? You know, that kind of thing. So the community is a real big deal. So that's not just some minor thing that, you know, Egypt would have been looked at as being a a good safe haven to go to. It would have been a place where they go where there's a lot of familiarity. In fact, Americans do that sometimes all the time when they move to other countries whether they're in the military or not you know sometimes they're looking for a place to live and the real estate agent will tell them that there's a lot of expats you know there's a lot of basically Americans living over here and and so because the familiarity of the language and of the lifestyle if you're in a maybe in a very different kind of a, a culture uh, that that makes makes the transition much easier uh, for you so that's that's not a, that's not a far-fetched idea but the second reason would be this it was to fulfill what the prophet said Hosea chapter 1 I mean Hosea chapter 11 verse 1 says when Israel was a child I loved him and out of Egypt I called my son so the phrase out of Egypt I called my son Hosea chapter 11 verse 1 clearly this does not refer to the Messiah this refers to the people of Israel who were called God's son even before leaving Egypt. So there's a lot of ways that God refers to Israel, and this is one of them. And, and the reason why he calls Israel his son is to emphasize his love for Israel, his care for Israel, his involvement in their life. So this is very... I guess you would say colorful or descriptive language uh, to help to express to us to understand the relationship, how God feels about Israel and his commitment that's there. And so that's who he's talking about here. Uh, he's talking about Israel, and Israel is called God's son. So Matthew, I think, is giving us a hint of a very deep truth. 
Israel is called God's son. It goes as far back as the book of Exodus. Let me read to you. I think I have all these references there in your notes. In Exodus chapter 4, beginning in verse 22, uh, it says, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Now we know what's going on here. This is when Moses is having this interaction with Pharaoh and trying to get the the people of Israel to be freed from Egypt. And you notice how the language here is used, and I believe it's used, obviously, purposely. The Egyptians believed in many gods. They had, you know, main gods they worshipped and minor gods they worshipped. But here is the one God of Israel and he is emphasizing something that would have been unique uh, to the ears of the Egyptians because their gods didn't speak this way. But he says, Israel is my firstborn son. So why is he saying that? Clearly, what he's letting Pharaoh know is, these are my people. Like my firstborn son. There's, a, there's this love that is there. I am committed to them. You don't mess with my kid. Right? A lot of us have that. You know, when you have kids, we have that attitude. You can call me names. You ain't calling my kid names. I'll call my kid names, but you don't call my kid names. You know, that kind of thing. Uh, but the idea here is this, the emphasis on this relationship and why he is doing the things he's doing. That, and then that's why he then says, so if you don't do what I want, your firstborn son is going to die. And so he, it's the strongest terms possible. So when, you know, we, if you just think about it, when the plague comes and the firstborn son dies, Besides the anger that Pharaoh, I'm sure, experiencing grief, there's also got to be some guilt there. I think that intensifies the anger and the grief. It could have been prevented. He just had to let him go. He wouldn't do it. He just wouldn't do it. Now, it breaks him for a little while. You know, he lets him go, and then, of course, he changes his mind and sends the army after them, and that's a disaster. But the bottom line is, is, is that that has to be there. But what's being emphasized again here is how God views them. This is, this is not a God who's just sitting at the distance, just, eh, you know, I'm there, yeah, I like Israel, yeah, I formed them. and So let's just kind of see how things play out. That's not what he's doing. And again, that gives to us a clue when it comes to the relationship you and I have with God, it's easy for us because we live in a wealthy country. It's just one of the dangers that we face. It's easy for us to begin just to think and live and act as if everything just kind of depends upon us. Right? If I work hard, if I'm responsible, I'll be able to take care of my family. And in, in a sense, for the most part, that's true. And so we, we end up consciously almost independently from God thinking that it all depends upon us and it it doesn't not at all it's on God and so what we are reminded of again here is that we we are adopted as as God's what sons That, that reveals to us you could say it this way God's feelings towards us we read through the promises of Jesus we will he will not leave us he will not forsake us So again, remember that we live by faith. So we live in a very psychologized culture. And so there's a lot of emphasis on feelings. So once again, as Christians, we must understand 
that there will be times, maybe a lot, but there will be times you don't feel like you're close to God. You don't feel like God is close to you. You don't feel like God is watching over your life and doing anything. But we live by faith. Faith means I trust in the person of God. I trust in what He says. I trust Him because of His past acts. I trust Him because He has not lied. And so when I read the Scripture about not being left alone, and I read the Scripture that He will comfort us, I believe that whether I feel it or not. And that can and does have a profound impact on my life and the way I live life and the way that I respond to life. If I don't trust that, and I am living my life like a lot of individuals, based on how I feel. Now again, I'm not saying that feelings have no part in your life. They do. But we don't live our life based on that. We don't somehow think that God has abandoned us because we feel abandoned. I don't know where that feeling may come from if you, if you get that feeling from time to time. It can come from a lot of places. It doesn't really matter. What does matter? What God has said. And we see what God has done. And we see that here. The Messiah is presented as God's Son. Uh, um, not, not only a, a little earlier in the book of Matthew, but it's reflecting what we have in Isaiah chapter 9. Let me read to you verses 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Psalm 2-7 I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Proverbs chapter 30 verse 4 Who has ascended to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his fist? Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? And what is his son's name? Surely you know. In Proverbs 30, the only answer to those five questions is God. That's the answer to all of them. Only he can go up to heaven and come down, reminding us of Christ, the Son of God. Only God can hold the wind in his hand and figuratively wrap the waters in his cloak. And only he has fixed the place, or fixed the earth in its place. The question of what is his name ask, is asking this, what is his true character? What is it like? In the question itself, what is the name of his son? It suggests this, has he imparted his nature or attributes to any other who may in any sense be called his son? The answer is yes. That is in this child that the Magi is worshipping. He's truly a magnificent being, to say the least. Thus the son equals the son. The Messiah is equated with this. He is one with the nation of Israel. I think that is the deep truth that Matthew is hinting at by calling Jesus' flight to Egypt a fulfillment of Hosea 11.1. God still has this great love for Israel, for his people. And so that's why it's important we recognize that we are part of what? God's people. I am his son. You are his child. 
And here there is this identification of Jesus so closely connected to the people of Israel that he is viewed as being a fulfillment of this passage here in the book of Hosea chapter 11. That that what God is doing is again not some just arbitrary idea that he suddenly had. When Malachi finished and you have this 400 years of silence, God wasn't doing that time trying to figure out what to do next. That's not what he was doing. He was orchestrating all the events in the world, bringing all these events together so he then would deliver his son to the earth. So he would would come in the flesh and accomplish what he wanted him to accomplish. It really is a phenomenal thing. And he does so because of his great love for us. There is nothing else that makes sense. There's nothing we have he needs. What what do we do for him? Nothing. He's fully self-sufficient in every way. And so he loves us. Period. And he willingly does all of these things for us. And wants us again to see that Jesus is not just playing a part in a movie. He is personally committed to us in this way. And here, as we see this connection with Israel, so as Matthew writes, and he's writing to a primarily Jewish audience, he wants them, and he knows that they'll get this, clearly understand that this Messiah, this is the Jewish Messiah. He is here for Israel. He's not discounting us, but we want to understand the context of what's going on. This in turn, and we kind of touched on this a little bit in the past, this in turn points to Jesus as being the new Moses, who would lead the new Exodus. In fact, there's a lot of old rabbinic texts that show that the Jews expected the Messiah to be like Moses, and that the Messianic era was going to be like the Exodus. So this journey then to Egypt and back reinforces the similarities of Jesus to Moses. So sinners should trust Jesus as Savior and Deliverer who will liberate his people from their slavery to sin and to Satan, much like Moses liberated his people from their slavery to the Pharaoh. When, Mo, when Matthew writes, these people are making all that connection. When you and I learn about what's going on with Israel in the book of Exodus, you know, it's going to be pointed out to us that the similarities of what was going on there and what Jesus has done for us. Back in Matthew 2, beginning in verse 16, it says, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem, and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. To say the least, Herod was a dubious man. They do not like to be outsmarted. And he was ticked. He was angry. He thought he had it all worked out. He played the part. Oh, when you find him, let me know so I can come and worship him too. Of course, we all know, just from reading the scripture, that his intent would have been, was been to slaughter him. And so now he's mad. So imagine now, because we, we can gloss over this really very quickly. So in Israel, you're under Roman rule. 
you know, things aren't like they really should be. You don't have the kind of freedoms you would like to have. But, you know, you've learned to kind of get along and understand how Rome acts and what the soldiers do and how to make things happen. You know, Herod is, is kind of a, you know, he, he's, he's, he's kind of out of his mind. And, you know, he, he kills some of his own children. But, you know, well, we're not, we're not a threat to his throne. There's no uprising. And all of a sudden, in their minds, out of the blue... He says, all male kids, two years old and under, I want them dead. And of course, the Roman soldiers, there's no one asking why. No one's saying, well, now that's, that's highly immoral. That that's not asked. They just execute the orders. How many kids were killed? 20? 30? 40? I, no one knows. I mean, it's, it's just a little tiny region, a, a barely a dot on the map. As far as the world is concerned, who cares? I don't know if you've, ever, if you've ever done this. There are times when I will, you know, when I'm on the internet, I will go to news sources in other countries to see kind of what's going on in those countries. Things that aren't on the news, which is most things. Um, and so you find out what, what's happening. And it really is sometimes um, quite uh, alarming to see the kinds of things that are going on. You know, uh, I, I, I learned this that... Um, in America, a mass killing, I think I got it right, is you have to have at least, I think it's three people. That's a mass killing. In other countries, it begins at ten. If only nine are killed, that's not a mass killing. That's just a murder. Uh, it's ten or more. I think in other, and, and when you read, there's countries where this kind of thing, you know, we, we, we flip out when all of a sudden some guy shows up at Walmart and ends up shooting, you know, let's say 30 people and, and eight people die and we're losing our mind, which we should. I mean, it's not a, you know, that shouldn't be a normal thing and we're quite alarmed by that. Yeah, in other countries, that goes on maybe every week. Not all the other countries, but it's just not an unusual thing. And I'm like, man, I mean, boy, do we have it good. And we got, we got some issues. I'll grant that. But we are a very safe country compared to a lot of other countries. And so when you read about all those things, it's just, it can be really upsetting. So here in Israel, there's this whacked out Herod, this king, just gives this edict. And wants all these kids to be killed. So imagine, you're, you're home, you get ready for dinner, and the soldiers aren't exactly knocking on your door. You know, they're finding out where families are, and they just come in, and they grab your kid, and they take the sword, and just run them right through it, and then they leave. I mean, that would be no small disturbance. No matter what's going on. That's what's taking place. Herod's serious about all of this. So we got this quotation here, says in Matthew, then, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. So what is this quotation? Well, it's from Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 15. Ramah is a village that's about five miles north of Jerusalem. And what was important about Ramah was, remember we were going through the book of, of Lamentations and the Babylonian basically destruction of, of Israel, of Jerusalem. When they were displacing the people a lot of times they would take them where they had built a kind of a prison camp in Ramah. And that was where they would, it was kind of like a, where they would be stationed until they were deported uh, to other places. So that's where the Babylonian conquerors kept Israelite prisoners. Now Bethlehem was eight miles south of Jerusalem. 
But Ramah and Bethlehem were associated with each other because of Rachel. That's the wife of, wife of Jacob. Remember, she's the mother of Joseph. She probably died near Ramah while she was on her way to Bethlehem. So in their mind, you know, they have a large portions of the Old Testament memorized. They know their history. They know the importance of Rachel. She gave birth to all these different sons that the, you know, that the tribes of Israel come from. And so she's a, an important figure in their history. And so as she was leaving Ramah and on her way to Bethlehem, she dies. And so this area is kind of known uh, as being a place associated with Rachel. So although obviously Rachel was, is dead long by the time of Jeremiah, she would have been heartbroken to witness her people being exiled to a foreign land. So Matthew cites that passage because Herod's slaughter of the babies in Bethlehem demonstrates that the Israelites are what? They're still in exile. They're still suffering the consequences of their idolatry and their wickedness. Remember that when, when God allowed the Babylonians, when he used the Babylonians to come in and march in on Jerusalem, it was because literally for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, God had warned Israel that they were to worship him and him alone. And they were not to go after other gods. And Israel continued to do that. And there were brief moments of time when they would repent. In fact, it is believed by some, and it may be accurate, that when it came to some of these religions and child sacrifice, that Israel was so into following some of these other idols that they sacrificed even more of their children than the original worshippers of some of these gods. I mean, they just were a mess. And they, and they had the truth. They, in their history, they had the stories, the true stories of how God acted on their behalf and had delivered them. And had given them His law and just nothing. Just a small group of those who are faithful. And so God had warned and warned and warned and warned. And so then when, when the Babylonians are coming in, you know, Jeremiah is telling him, he's already told him this is going to happen. Now he's there when it is happening. That's because of that. Israel is still in exile. They still don't rule themselves. They don't have any freedoms. They've learned how to get along with their captors. And this is a reminder. Yeah, you don't, you don't have your own country. The people can come in and just kill your kids. And there's nothing you can do. That's, that's, it's hard to understand what that would be like to live in that kind of a place. But when Matthew gives us all of this, and as he continues on in the narrative, but what we should take away from this is that there's still hope, though. Why is there hope? Well, the promised deliverer has come. He was born in a manger in Bethlehem. And then, by God's intervention, he fleed to Egypt. And though there was this massive slaughter that he would have been caught up in, he wasn't there. And he survived. He survived the slaughter. He will deliver. He is going to restore God's repentant people as God promised. Again, God has left nothing to chance. In the same way when it comes, I don't know if you've ever done this in your life, but maybe you should spend some time thinking about your life before you became a believer. Not the sin you were involved in, but the way life was being lived. Who was in your life? What influences, in what ways did God protect your mind, or protect your life, or protect your family, as God moved history along to the point that you heard the gospel and you believed? 
I, I think God has spared us from many things. We won't be aware of all the things that perhaps God has spared us from. But what do we see again? God is, is merciful and gracious. One time when I, was, uh, when, when I was serving as a chaplain in the jail, I had a, a man come up to me. He was in his 30s. And uh, this, I don't know what the reason is, but, you know, this guy comes up to me and he's, you know, praise the Lord this, praise the Lord that. And that's, that's fine. Um, I'm not impressed by that. I don't go, oh, a real Christian. Because, you know, we're in jail. And I get to leave and he doesn't. So he's broken the law and whatever he's done. So he's saying all these things. And so we're just kind of talking and different things. And he, just, he wants me to know how God has saved his life. And that God has saved his life five different times. He, knows, he said, I, I know that. I said, really? He goes, yeah, I've been shot five times. And before I could say a word, up comes the shirt, and he shows me, you know, the scars from the bullet holes. You know, and so he's just kind of going on about all these things. And, you know, I know God saved me for something special. And, of course, at that moment when he's saying that, I'm thinking, dude, you just buried yourself. Because when he finished, I said, I just got to ask you a question, man. I said, you're convinced that God has saved your life five times. He goes, it has to be that way. There's no other explanation. I said, you're convinced, which I would agree with you, that God has spared your life for you, for you to accomplish maybe something or, or to do something. He goes, oh, absolutely. I go, then what are you doing in jail? Is that how you show your appreciation to God? You broke the law? He goes, you don't understand. I go, I don't. That's why I'm asking. I said, I don't get it. You see, we can even become convinced. Because I think he was convinced, in a, in a way, that God had saved his life. He had no other explanation. But what was the impact on his life? Whatever it was that was short-lived, didn't change anything. So the warning, as we, as we go through all of these things, the warning is, is that it, you may become convinced that God has spared your life for something special and unique. Do you, do you really believe that? Does your life reflect that? If it was nothing more than the fact that God has spared you so that you could hear the gospel, understand the gospel, have your eyes open and receive the, the wonderful gift of eternal life that God has given you. And, and, and you've done that. And you belong to Christ. Christ has sacrificed himself for you. And we know in appreciation for all that he's done for us, you know, that, that we, and we want God to use us. How are you... Bringing that to fruition in your life? Or are you just going through the motions? Or you still find it hard to pray with your kids? Still find it hard to get up on Sunday morning to worship God with other believers? Still find it hard to maybe pray for those that you care about? I mean, what's, what's happening in your life? And you may be doing all those things and that's great. I'm not saying that we're all going to be aware of all these extravagant things that we're doing. It may not be extravagant. But I'm asking you to look at your life, individually, your life. God has spared you and I, and He does expect us to live in obedience to His will and to glorify His name. No matter what your age, you're a kid and you go to school or you're homeschooled, God expects you to behave a certain way and to pursue certain things. You're a teenager, and your mind is all over the place because there's all kinds of things going on? Great. God still expects you to behave in a certain way, to pursue certain things, to think in a particular way. You're a young adult, or the more responsibilities we take, we don't just take on all these responsibilities because it's just a part of living. No, I take them on as a Christian. I take them on as one who represents Jesus Christ. 
I take them on as an individual who understands that God has literally spared my life. Because if I'm saved, even if my life was never in physical danger before, God has saved my life through His Son Christ. What an incredible thing. And so I, I fulfill my responsibilities as a Christian. Live my life to glorify Him. So we can look back one day and maybe look back at our lives through the eyes of faith and say, you know, I, I mean, I didn't have the kind of experiences Joseph had. But man, I, I can see how God moved in my life in amazing ways. But you, I don't want to squander that. And so I, I trust that, that you will think about those things in your life and not only thank the Lord for what He's done, but ask the Lord to renew in your life again that desire to serve Him. As I, as I close in prayer, one thing to remember. Each time a message was given to Joseph, you notice what he does. He immediately obeys. So he does. No fanfare, no nothing. He just gets on with life and does what he's supposed to do. That's what God wants us to do. And in that we'll find peace, contentment. It will be used by God, I think, in amazing ways. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your goodness and your incredible patience. Father, we see, again, your hand in amazing ways in this brief narrative concerning the birth of your Son, Christ. And Father, we are not only amazed, we are truly grateful that, again, you left nothing to chance. And that all these things took place as you said they would. And that as we read these things, we can see, Lord, how it is emphasized, how you identify with us, how you care for us, how you are, in one sense, personally committed to us. But you are committed to us for your sake. Abba Father, we are the recipients of grace as a result of that, and we thank you. And so, Father, for those of us who believe in Christ, we know we can never thank you enough, but we say thank you, Father, for all that you've done. And, Father, for those here this morning who don't know Christ, I just ask, Lord, that you would convict them of their separation from you. To realize, Lord, that they have been living their life maybe unintentionally, or they were unaware of the fact that they were really living in rebellion to who you are. And they were not fulfilling your purpose in their life. And I pray, Father, that they will come and they will repent of their sins and turn to you and trust in Christ to save them from their sin. And Father, we will rejoice with the angels in heaven over each one who does. And so, Father, we ask that you would cause us to think about these things through the week and that you will continue to change us into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. And Father, we may bring glory and honor to your name as we live each day for your glory. We thank you and we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.